me. My only boast is you. You were carried along by the tune, and you prayed that which you did not know you were praying. But the Spirit is faithful to hear your prayers and to bring them before the throne of the living God and answer them in faithfulness. And so we ask, hallelujah, all I have is Christ, hallelujah, Jesus is my life. You prayed it because you sang it, the Spirit carried it before the throne of our God who reigns. Our God is faithful to answer such prayers, so as your pastor, allow me to encourage you to buckle up. We're going to be looking at Isaiah as we continue our series. In Isaiah, we'll be looking at the second half of Isaiah chapter 54, beginning with verse 11. As you turn there, and I want to encourage you to turn there, I want you to remember what Isaiah's message is. For 40 years, Isaiah has been ministering in Israel. During days and weeks and months and years that are leading up to what will become known as the Babylonian exile. His message, you remember, he received in Isaiah chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died when he walked into the temple and he beheld the king, the king of glory, high and lifted up. His name is the Lord, Yahweh. And that vision became Isaiah's message. Your God reigns. That was a very practical message that seemed very impractical. Because he was proclaiming as real something that felt very unreal. He was proclaiming something as a very as a very plausible military strategy that did not feel very strong and mighty to the kings in question. Since we are all particularly vulnerable to the lie that, in fact, we can do it, just like little children who are always quite confident that they know more than they actually do. And since we regularly collide with the limits of our own wisdom and understanding and courage and confidence and strength and stamina and skill, both individually and corporately, we regularly need to be reminded that A, we don't reign. That contrary to the sweet lies of our culture, we are not masters of our own fate. Not masters of our own fate in a life of our own making. And secondly, that our God does reign in every cubic inch of our life. So that, thirdly, 
We must confess our treason for having believed that we were kings. We must turn from it. We must bow our knees and once again acknowledge his reign and once again swear allegiance to it. For brothers and sisters, it is the banner of our king's love to which we must swear allegiance. This is the burden and the urgency of Isaiah's message to Israel and to us. But it's not just about raw power. It's about the way that this God reigns. His power is real and political and economic and military and interpersonal power. But it is a power exercised with steadfast, loving, and tender justice and mercy. The same and unchanging wherever we are and whenever we are. And this breeds a very real help for the helpless, a very real hope for the hopeless. Peace for the afflicted, victory for the oppressed. Assuming, of course, that we awaken from the virtual reality dream state with which our culture has vexed us and actually behold the fingerprints of his reign in our world and in our life in it. That's why we're here today. Now, each one of you has come for a multiple of reasons that you can identify and you can counter. But I will tell you that all of those are just the means by which the spirit of the triune God himself has gathered you here because of his great love for you that you might know your God reigns. So read with me the last half of Isaiah chapter 54. The first half, you will remember, was addressed strangely to a barren woman. And he is told, he tells this barren woman to rejoice and get ready because her offspring will be so great that they won't fit in her tent. And he continues this theme. Verse 11. O oh, afflicted, storm-tossed, lacking comfort. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and, the, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness, you shall, be, they, you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, 
I have created the smith who blows the fires of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the title of this sermon comes from that last expression. This is the heritage of the saints. It's the word of the Lord to us this day, so let us go to him in prayer. So, Father, we pray that you would meet with us uh, during this hour by your Spirit, and that in a very special way at this time, in this place, in this hour, you would open our eyes to behold marvelous things from your word, open our ears to hear them, open our hearts to lay hold of them. So captivate us by the beauty and the wonder and the power of your great love for us in Jesus Christ that we go forth from this place a changed people that the world would look and wonder what kind of invisible God makes himself visible through the changed lives of his people. We pray that you would do this, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. We pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. So today, as we have been saying, is known as All Saints, actually All Saints Sunday. It's the first Sunday following All Saints Day, as Scott reminded us. And as we said a little bit earlier, it is important that we know, that we, Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, know that we are but one tiny little congregation of a worldwide body that bears the name Christ. It is also not uh, coincidentally, but as a part of that, it is also known as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church because So many of our brothers and sisters with whom we share the name Christ gather this day at great risk of their life, at great risk to their spouse's life, at great risk to their children's life. Many, perhaps most, of our brothers and sisters endure fear and horrifying persecution for what? For bearing the name Christ. For their faith that in Jesus, that is, by his birth and life and death and resurrection, our God reigns. No other king, no other despot, no other ideology. Our God reigns. And for that, they walk to church knowing that it could be their last day upon the earth. 
Let me just give you some stats in order to try to drive the point home. Each month, each month, statistically speaking, each month, 322 Christians are killed. Each month, 214 properties owned by Christians are destroyed, whether they are churches or businesses or homes. Each month, there are 772, and all of this is just the recorded ones. We don't know about the ones that are not recorded. 772 violent actions against Christians. So in 2016, that factored out to be about 90,000 of our brothers and sisters who were killed in 2016. Why? Because they bear the name Christ. That factors out to be about one every six minutes. About 70% of them were from tribal villages in Africa. About 30% of them were victims of terrorism and government persecution. There were likely more since stats aren't available from places like China and India. There is good news to that, however, because that number in 2016 is actually down from 2015 in which 105,000 were killed. Half of all Christians who died, listen to this, half of all Christians who have died since there were a people known as Christians died in the last century. Isn't that amazing? We, we read about this in Acts, of persecutions in Acts, and it's easy for us to think. We read about the, about the martyrdom of Paul, the martyrdom of John, about Peter and Stephen, and we think, wow, what a horrible time to be a Christian. Half of all martyrs, Christian martyrs, died in the last century. In Iraq, the Christian population has been decimated down from 1.5 million to about 275,000. Not to be too graphic, but it very, is very easy in our culture to dismiss such things, and so forgive me. But Christian girls and women as young as nine years old are kidnapped because they bear the name Christ and sold into slavery, and I will let you imagine what kind. Are you ready? Auctioned for $175 a piece. Why? Because they bear the name Christ. Our brothers and sisters, us, are the most persecuted group in 2000. 16. If we are in Christ, as Paul describes it, that is, if we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ, then we have more in common with our persecuted, homeless, Syrian, Iraqi, and other brothers and sisters than we do with our fellow Alabama or Georgia fans who are unchurched, 
less churched or de-churched non-Christians. Indeed, not to press the point too hard, we have more in common with our persecuted and homeless brothers and sisters in other parts of the world than with our fellow Alabama or Georgia fans who perhaps are churched and non-Christians. And just a little plug, if the statement that I just made makes no sense to you, then it may be that you are not in Christ. And if that is the case, please come and speak to me. If you find yourself saying, Dan, that makes no sense to me, that I have more in common with somebody that I've never met than someone that I watched the Alabama football game with, then please come and speak to me. You see, the lives of our Christian brothers and sisters in Syria have been decimated and are being decimated. Truly, our brothers and sisters are every day afflicted They are storm-tossed, and they are comfortless. Not to say that they're inconsolable, because they are consolable, and yet they find themselves without comfort. And we have to ask, why did he do it? Clearly, it's not working out for them. Clearly, it's not making them happy, successful. How do they do it? I share all this with you on All Saints Day and on this International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church because just as the prophets labored so many years ago for us, Isaiah's ministry is for us, we're told in the New Testament. So also our brothers and sisters suffering, our brothers and sisters suffering around the world is a ministry to us in North America. A proclamation to us, you and me, of the reality that by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, our God reigns. And that is an urgent message of life and death importance. I share all this because each one of us comes into this room on this day feeling the fear and anxiety and the fatigue of a battle that rages within us and surrounding us, which we don't quite comprehend. And we are somewhat surprised to find ourselves in the midst of. And in our own way, in our own circumstances, we feel ourselves to be afflicted, storm-tossed, and without comfort. You know the particulars of your situation. Our brothers and sisters around the world help us to more clearly understand the nature of our afflictions, the nature of the storms in which we find ourselves, the nature 
and the conditions of our own soul and circumstances and the elusiveness of comfort. For they remind us that contrary to what our eyes of flesh and our finite human rationality may tell us, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against unseen powers and principalities. The temptation is to look at their afflictions and to dismiss our own afflictions by comparison. Well, I don't have to deal with that. I'm lucky. But that's the wrong way to go. My prayer for you is to reverse that thinking. So that you say something like this, as real as my own afflictions and storms and dismay may be, how much greater are theirs? Ours are real. They hurt. They're difficult. Don't minimize that. But ask yourself, how much greater are theirs? So that... You can ask a follow-up question. Very quickly, it is true that most of what our brothers and sisters endure, as in the nations that I just talked about, most of what our brothers and sisters endure in terms of, in terms of the statistics originates outside of them. You might find it differently as we get down into the weeds of their situations. But most of our own afflictions and storms and refusal to be comforted arise from within our own idolatrous and adulterous commitments. Nonetheless, the ultimate source of our afflictions and storms and refusal to be comforted are rooted in what the Puritans summarized as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the names of the powers and principalities with which God's people have always dealt with affliction and storms and discomfort. And so the follow-up question is this. As real as our own afflictions and storms and discomfort are, how much greater are, the, are theirs? And having made that move in your mind, here's the question I want you to be asking as we go into this passage. Not dismissing our own real afflictions and storms, I want you to ask of them, why do they do it? Why do they do it week after week, day after day? Why do they endure such afflictions? Why do they keep going to church? Why do they keep telling others about Jesus? What do they know that we don't know? After all, we'll stop going to church if it's not a happy place, or if it's raining, or if it's foggy, or if there's an Iron Man, or if, or if the Alabama kickoff is at 11, or Georgia, or Auburn. 
Nobody cares anymore when the Tennessee or Florida kickoff is. And now, some of you are considering not coming to church next week because I just dissed your team. Exactly. At risk to their lives, their spouse's life, their children's life, why do they keep going? Why do they keep singing? Why do they keep praying? Why do they keep telling others? What do they know that we don't know? How did they do it? Well, as Isaiah has been saying, your God reigns. And he exercises that reign by his servant, whose appearance and method of waging peace in a world at war is simply stunning. It's simply astonishing. And as Daniel Dukes discovered a couple weeks ago, it is startling. Because it leaves us in slack-jawed, speechless amazement. A reign so strange, so powerful, that a barren woman can rejoice and even plan to expand her home. Because the one who reigns is her husband. I will make you fruitful. I will make you flourish. In verse 5 of chapter 54, we heard this. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And that picks up on a theme that runs throughout Scripture. This theme of the bride and the groom. And I want you to remember this ancient Jewish practice. In terms of brides and grooms. The groom would come. To his bride or to the woman who would become his bride. And he publicly engages himself to her. Promising himself to marry her. And there is this big public ceremony and this big public celebration. And then he leaves. To prepare a place for them. For their new life together. He is going to go, and in terms of ancient Jewish practice, he's going to either build another home on the parent's property, or he is going to add on to the parent's home. He leaves to prepare the house where they will make their home. And when that's ready, he comes back for her. And he carries her away his bride, to their new home. Now I'm thinking to myself, man, that's great. I'm going to get a home in Stanford Place. No, read the passage with me. As nice as the homes are there, they are shacks compared to what we read here. Look, afflicted one, storm-tossed, not comforted, I will set your stones in antimony, your foundations 
will be sapphires. Why not just use cinder block? It's below the frost line. Nobody's going to see it. Sapphires? Are you kidding me? Pinnacles of agate. Gates of carbuncles. Wall of precious stones. That is stunning. And then you realize, oh my word, he's not talking about a home. He's talking about a city. He's not just going to prepare a room for me. He's not going, just going to prepare a, a, an addition to his parent and to his father's house. He's going to build a city for his bride. The one on whom he has set his love. For those of you who are wondering, antinomy is a sort of um, element that uh, it looks um, silverish gray and um, primarily used actually in the ancient world as makeup. I cannot imagine what the um, rates of cancer were um, in the ancient world. But, um, but they were also, there, there is some evidence that they were, it was actually also used to make artifacts such as vases and other implements like that. But here, it is described as the mortar, merely the mortar. The mortar itself would glow with the glory of God. So the mortar is antimony. The foundations are sapphires, pinnacles of agate, gates of carbuncles, and your walls of precious stones. Why? Some of you who are familiar might be thinking to yourself, this kind of sounds like the overkill of the New Jerusalem. Streets paved with gold? For crying out loud, what a waste! The logic goes like this. The glory of God's presence with his people, with his bride, causes all that we deem the most valuable here today as but construction materials. Just rocks. How glorious is that home going to be? Because it's not about the sapphires. It's not about the carbuncles. It's not about the precious stones. It's about our husband, the glorious one of Israel, the king who reigns, coming and making his dwelling with us, his bride. It's a house of stunning beauty. A house that will be filled with children running and playing who know the Lord. Who speak the Lord's thoughts after him because that's the language of the household. How great will that be? And not only so, but it's a house that is founded on righteousness. There is no issue like at our house where our dear contractors didn't know how to build a foundation. And so they reversed the lip. And so now the rock on the face falls to the ground. Fortunately, however, you can see the wonders of our cinder block foundations. It is not just beautiful, it is secure. Anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. 
Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Because I'm the one who builds this house. I have created the smith. I'm the one who creates the ravager. Nothing will come against you and succeed. Because not only is this house beautiful, this house is powerful and secure. You can bring all the power of hell against it. And it will stand. How great is that? Amen. Amen. Who needs insurance for floods when you have that kind of house? Who needs insurance for your vineyards and your, and, your, and your homes in California when you have that kind of house? Indeed, who can separate you from the love of your husband when you live in that kind of house? No one. Nothing. Wayward children, lost jobs. ISIS at the door, nothing. The story here, the background to this amazing story is the story of Babel. Mankind's infamously failed attempt to build for himself a glorious city that would outshine the sun, that would reach even to the sun. What a debacle. And it's in the wake of that that God's promise comes to Abraham and he says, I will give you a great name and I will make for you a great city and I will make for you a great kingdom and I will make for you a great nation because I am your lover and you just don't know it yet. And the anticipated context for which Isaiah is writing because he knows the days are coming that Israel will find themselves in exile in the midst of which appears to be mankind's greatest civilizational accomplishment, Babylon. Within just a few years after their exile, Babylon itself would be decimated so that we hardly even know it exists today in terms of human history. To be replaced by a Persian empire. To be replaced by the rise of Alexander the Great, to be replaced by Rome, to be replaced by Western civilization, which itself will be replaced by what? I don't know. Perhaps we are seeing the last days and last months of that now. But what we do know is that our God's reign will outlast them all. By the way, that greatest of civilizational accomplishment, that Babylonian empire to be replaced by the Persian empire, that's modern day, by the way, Iraq and Iran, more generally the Middle East. You see, in the midst of our afflictions and storms, 
an elusive pursuit of safety and comfort, brothers and sisters, we must remember our lover is the victorious king. It may appear that Babylon is on the rise. It may appear that our afflictions and storms will last forever. But our lover is the king of victory. He delights in us. Not because there's any special thing in us, not because we're particularly faithful, not because we're particularly lovely or lovable, but because that's his glory. Like the flowers of the field, like the morning dew on the grass, all of these other civilizations will come and go and evaporate in the face of our lover, the coming victorious king. This is the unseen reality in the present that is realized with confidence in our current circumstances by faith. We read earlier from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 has that great passage that we in North America don't like, that one that says, don't neglect the gathering of yourselves together because it is in the gathering of ourselves together that we, that we are reminded of and we bear witness to the reality of this city that the king is building. And so he ends, don't shrink back from that faith and so be destroyed. But actually, the end of, verse, the end of chapter 10, but actually, no, we are of those who have faith and so preserve their souls. Well, that raises the question, Hebrews chapter 11. What is faith? Well, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, things that the prophets spoke about. And we hope one day to see visibly things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. My invisible God by his prophets said he would do this. And I have every confidence that he will. This is faith. And so having defined faith, the rest of chapter 11 is now that faith demonstrated by faith, by faith Abel, through his faith, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses, by faith Moses, by faith the people, by faith the walls of Jericho, by faith Rahab the prostitute. What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of a sword, 
were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, which many believe is a reference to Isaiah. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, same word, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains. All these, though commanded through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What could possibly be better than the bridegroom, the maker himself, building for us a great city. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What? Looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter, the very substance in the flesh of the very thing for which we hope. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and so is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Brothers and sisters, our God reigns. That which Isaiah promised has now happened. And he is even now in the process of building us as living stones into this worldwide temple of his glory, a place where we may be together with him at his table without shame, without fear, without any of the encumbrances of sin, but with rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, this is what our brothers and sisters know that we so easily forget. This is why they continue to gather. This is why they continue to gather at great risk to themselves and their families. This is why they continue to sing, why they continue to pray, why they continue to tell others about Jesus. Indeed, this is how they do it. Because faith is not just a feeling. It is the absolute confidence in the reality of our lover's reign through the life, death, resurrection, and present-day reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you have to understand, this is how we put one foot in front of the other in the midst of afflictions at great risk to our lives. This is why we continue to gather to worship. This is why we tell others about Jesus, because that is our hope. So Father, we come and we pray, even as Paul prayed,